Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 16, 2014, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's time for your calls to the Think Line. The Think Line number is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. For those without letters on your dial for whatever reason, 866-658-4465. Again, 866-658-4465. You call that number, you're not going to hear, Hello, caller, this is Jack. You're on the air because it's a podcast. Podcasts, by their very nature, are seldom live. They are pre-recorded and then published and sent out into the great big wide world for you to listen to at your convenience. Largely commercial-free, I might add, except for a little bit here in the beginning. On that note, let's go ahead and take care of today's sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. Hey, if you get over to Sawtooth Tactical, located at sawtac.com, You'll be able to find all the cool stuff you need to live the tactical lifestyle. I mean everything. SOE, uh, SOE tactical gear, max expedition bags, you name it. Everything's over there. The titanium manly spork, magpul magazines. They've got it. A veteran owned, veteran operated company nestled in the, uh, sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, which is why they have the name sawtooth. Check them out today. Sawtooth tactical. Next up today, backwoods home magazine. A long, long time ago, there was a guy named Jack. He had just gotten out of the Army, and he went back home to rural Pennsylvania. And there was a lot of things he liked about rural Pennsylvania, but you know what? There was no future there. So he packed up a little Ford Mustang too. This is a true story, and he drove to Dallas, Texas, where his car promptly broke down 12 miles from the friend's house he was going to visit and see about staying there. They decided to become roommates and stay there together and... Uh, did that for a while, did manage to fix my car, um, but I tried to save money the best I could, and I would walk a lot of places uh, when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, and found a little bookstore called Barnes & Noble at a mall less than a mile away from the apartment I lived in, and found Backwoods Home Magazine. It was my connection back to rural living. Once I got a job, not long after that, and I got on my feet, it was one of the first magazine subscriptions I ever subscribed to. In fact, it was the first one I ever subscribed to as a grown adult that did it for myself. I've been reading it ever since. That year that that story happened was 1993. Can't really give you a better endorsement than that for Backwoods Home Magazine. They also do support the MSB, both those guys and Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, so you can get discounts from them uh, as a new subscriber or when you order from Sawtooth. And let me tell you about the other discount vendor that we're going to talk about today from uh, the Member Support Brigade, CampingSurvival.com. CampingSurvival.com does a 5% discount on all purchases for members of the Support Brigade. Uh, they're a very well-known supplier of some really cool gear. So, uh, you know, if you're a member, go log in once in a while, click on that benefits section, and look at all the stuff you get discounts on. It more than pays for your membership. If you're not a member yet, please consider joining. Do that, and you help support the show. You get a bunch of great discounts. You get content available nowhere else. You get over $200 worth of free eBooks to download on day one and a lot of other great stuff. Check it out today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty and Prior Service, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you do qualify for a service discount. If you email me before, not after you join, before 
Email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount on the subject line, one or two sentences. Tell me about your service. I'll get the discount code back to you. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. The episode is 1348. So the year is 1348. And as we move into the middle 1300s, you will find the Black Death dominating the scene. Uh, in fact, every single entry in the three entries by Alex Shrugged in TSP Wiki today is about the Black Death. And I can promise you, if you were there at the time and living in the society in Europe, you probably were talking about little else. I want to read something to you, though, to go back to some comments I made that it had a lot of people emailing me asking me what I was talking about. I talked about the Holocaust and the fact that the United Kingdom and the United States of America were the genesis of some of the things that actually caused the Holocaust. People want to know what I'm talking about. This fits with it. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Black Death, Pope Clement the the 11th, is that the 11th? No, it's the 6th, saves the Jews as best he can. With the Black Death sweeping across Europe and local peasants seek someone to blame, many accuse the Jews of poisoning the wells in order to kill the Christians. Despite attempts by Pope Clement the uh, the, the sixth to claim to calm his Christian flock there in panic, Zurich in present day Switzerland bans the Jews and the plagues won't reach Zurich for yet another year. Some authorities arrest Jews probably in an attempt to protect them from violence. Sixty large Jewish communities are wiped out along with many smaller ones across Europe. My take from Alex Shrugged, from uh, FYI, from a Jewish perspective, the Christians are not exactly covering themselves in glory this year, but the normal patterns are being followed. In general, for whatever reason, the better educated leadership try to protect the Jews within their communities, but the peasantry, the lower clergy, and the monks usually blame the Jews in the midst. There are reasons for this having little to do with religion, but religion is used as an excuse. Various popes at this time are establishing colleges to train the clergy So they have more consistent Christian education. The church will change the educational system again when they realize that the Holocaust was due in part to linking Christianity with national identity or a national figure as they did in the Middle Ages rather than making an individual conviction. This allowed Hitler to claim if a citizen didn't support Germany in war, he wasn't a good Christian. Um, interesting. Interesting. And class warfare, whether done just to raise taxes or to kill people, is old news. But this was a, when I saw this history segment, I thought this would be a good time to tell you the rest of the story, at least part of it, as to how the Holocaust had a lot of its genesis in the United States of America. I really recommend those of you that have Netflix look up a documentary called it was either Nazi Medicine or Nazi Doctors one or the other, I watched this recently and I was shocked at how a lot of what happened in Germany had its genesis in the United States through eugenics now eugenics is something that gets thrown around by people in the conspiracy world a lot today I'm not saying there's no truth to it but it certainly isn't what it was in the early 1900s and late 1800s do you know eugenics was taught in medical schools in the United States? Yep. And it was also taught as a theory in Germany, and many of our doctors here and from England went to Germany to study and came back here and actually started to implement a lot of eugenics policies faster than the Nazis did. You know, there used to be forced sterilizations in the United States of America. In fact, Germany congratulated, congratulated, congratulated the United States of America 
on passing laws for forced, first forced sterilization before Germany did and getting it done. There was a belief that we could make society better by at least, if not getting rid of them, at least preventing the people that were dumb, lazy, stupid, incompetent, handicapped, whatever word you wanted to put after it, slow, from reproducing. Ghastly, isn't it? And it was this medical program that led to the concentration in death camps. That's where it started. It started with the belief that we'll just make sure that these people don't reproduce so society doesn't have to pay for them. I mean, we look back at that and we think that's that's not just horrible. That's hard to believe that people would even think that way, especially in the United States. I guess we can think about some of the racism going on at the time and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan at the time and think, well, yeah, okay, maybe. But that was a different time and a different place and a different horrible group of people. And we don't think like that anymore today, and we've learned our lessons, have we? I want to try, and I don't want anybody to twist this and say that I'm some evil bastard for doing this. I'm, I'm not, and I don't mean what I'm about to say. But I want to show you the precarious place that society still exists in with this kind of thinking. I want you to take, especially those of you that are liberty-oriented and educated, and I want you to dumb yourself down for me for a moment. I want you to think of yourself like the typical workaday Joe in America today. This barely got his head above water. This busting his ass and looks over at all the people on welfare and thinks, Son of a bitch, why don't you people do what I do and take care of your own? What if, what if, some of you are even going to think this is a good idea. I want all of you to let yourself feel that way for a moment, though, so you can understand the psychology. What if we came up with a new program in America today and we said, you know what, if you're on welfare, and we say, oh, please think of the children. If you're on welfare and you are raising children, a society has to pay for you and your children, Okay, that's, that's, you know, we got to take care of the kids. We understand that. They didn't ask to be born. They're here now, and they're society's issue. And if we don't take care of them, so we can't just get rid of welfare wholesale. We can't do it. But the taxpayers are already funding your children. You don't need any more. We started off, we said, if you have another child, your welfare benefits do not go up, and that child is not covered. And we tried that, and people thought that might be a good idea. And then we hear, oh, but these children now are starving and they're suffering, and, and you know they still didn't ask to be born. And somebody said, hey, you know what? Fine. If you want, if you want government welfare for children, you are not allowed to reproduce. Mandatory contraception. And of course, that doesn't work because there's really no way to do it unless we inject the contraception, the, maybe the thing with the sticks that they put in women's arms, maybe we make that mandatory. Uh, but we still have failure, so we start saying, you know what, no one's making you take this welfare. If you want welfare, then you cannot reproduce, period. You have to be sterilized. Not mandatory. It's mandatory if you take the welfare. And if it wasn't done that fast, if it was done over time, with enough propaganda... And I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you to think about, let go how evil this is and where it leads to. Okay, because we all know it leads to an evil place. This is an educated group of people I'm speaking to. Let go of that for a second and try to go into that work of J. Joe mentality. 
that doesn't have this an advanced critical thinking, critical analysis, understanding of the long term. Let's think about it this way. With charismatic leader and propaganda, is it not a legitimate statement that if society is already paying for you and your children, you don't need to be creating more children that are going to be an equal burden on society? Isn't that actually a legitimate statement? Now, we have a libertarian solution to this that doesn't involve anything about birth control or eugenics or what have you. But let's put that away because it's a horrible thing, like maybe we don't need to be providing all this government assistance in the first place. But as long as it's there, does not that case actually have some merit? Again, let go of the evil place that it goes to. Does it not have merit? Let's just let's personalize it. There's a person named Sue. She has three children from two husbands, but neither were ever husbands. They're just baby daddies, and they're not involved, and they're gone. You could try to force them to pay child support, but neither one of them have a pot to piss in, and you don't know where they are anyway. Two, one of the two is incarcerated. He ain't going to be paying any money, because he's just, and the other guy just flitted off, and he has no money, and there's nothing to take from him. And if you find him and throw him in jail for not paying his child support, it's not going to fix the problem. So she has three kids from two different fathers, And she's on welfare. She's getting WIC, food stamps, housing, living in the projects or what have you, Section 8, I don't know. But basically, the entire family is being paid to exist by the United States taxpayers. Okay? Is it right for Sue to go get pregnant and have another child while she's still living off the taxpayer's dollar? Let's not talk about how to enforce it. Let's just, is it right? And I think most people would say it's not right. And we should, you know, you got into whatever situation you got into, fine. You don't go create another life when you can't even personally care for the three you have now. Okay. The fact that that actually has some validity to it is very dangerous when properly used. And just making some class of people the scapegoat to another class of people in history has always led to the most horrible reaches of what humanity is capable of. And those of you that are thinking, you're feeling like, I, I can't believe that I feel this way, but yes, I do. I don't think those people should be reproducing. I know it's, I know where it goes, but I, The feeling is real. The point is real. The point is valid. No. No. Sue shouldn't be cranking out four more babies so she can stay on the dole longer. And we shouldn't be paying for any of them. At, oh, that's oh, that's even worse. Huh. I was, I was kind of offended by the eugenics thing, but the whole let's not pay. But you see where it leads. Anytime we set up a system in society that takes at the expense of one, to the benefit of another, and the one that's taken from does the work, and the one that benefits receives and does nothing, we create the dynamic for class warfare. And it can be used, it can be used to win an election, or it can be used to exterminate an entire group of people. And it has a real birthplace in this country. It has a real birthplace in this country. And this country 
several states passed laws requiring the sterilization of certain individuals and members of society, and indeed thousands of people without their consent in the United States of America were sterilized. And indeed, I believe, with the right marketing, a case to a large number of the American people today could be made successfully that we should look at doing that again. And if you don't want to be sterilized, stop taking the dependency handout would be the way they would do it today. I'm not saying they're going to do it. I'm saying you better always stay vigilant for this type of thinking because it preys upon the truth so that a lie can be manifested as the truth. Anyway, a little bit long in the history segment today, but uh, I thought that would be something you guys might be a little bit surprised about. I do want to give a quick Perma Ethos update before I take your first call. As many of you know, we're about to launch a PDC, a permaculture design course from Perma Ethos that's much more than that. It's kind of a partnership with us as a foundational member. We only have a thousand positions that we're making available for this. Uh, we hope we sell them all out, but like I said before, you just never know. I am getting a lot of questions, though. One has been, Jack, will you guys have a payment plan for those of us that just can't come up with 300 bucks? Uh, we'll probably do either 110 or 115 We haven't decided yet. Dollars a month for three months. You'll need a PayPal account for that. Um, the next one has been, I'm an MSB member. I want to make sure I get the first chance to join in. What do I do? You don't do anything. Just wait. I will send out an email to all members of the MSB. I will do a post on the blog, and I will tell you in advance before it launches, and you can log into the MSB, and there will be a link there, and you can go sign up. And MSB members uh, and members from Brink of Freedom's premium program, both of you guys get first chance at this. So you don't have to do anything. There's no seamless. People are like, how do I seamlessly do this? There's no seamlessness. There's no nothing. You don't have to prove it because if you are not a member – you won't have access to the link so that you can sign up. So it's really, really simple. Okay. Uh, and next thing has been a lot of people asking, I want to do one for me and one for my wife. Can we have one together? Can we buy two? What have you? Um, you can share the education, but you get one place and one certification if you buy one course. Okay. So if, If Tammy and Bob together go through the PDC, at the end there's a certification issued if you complete all your, your projects and your, your quizzes and everything else and submit your final design, then you get a certification. You are certified by Permaethos as a permaculture design uh, cert certified individual. Okay, So they gotta, which one gets it? If they both want certification, they both have to sign up. But we can't do it like quantity two. So, you know... Uh, and I've had people say, I want to do it for my daughter. Okay? You can set up an account for yourself, click buy again, and go back and set one for your daughter up. They're two separate accounts. They have to be. It's the only way we can make the system work. It's the only way we can keep track of everything. But, yes, you can buy more than one. We're not going to put a limit on it. But you do have to go through the entire process each time. Right? So it has to be. An in you can use the same method of payment. Okay? Will I be able to use a credit card? If you pay in full, you can use a credit card. Uh, we use PayPal to do our processing. It was the quickest thing we could get set up fast and not have to go through a million legal hurdles on. Um, but if you're going to do the payment plan, if you're going to do the payment plan, then you're going to have to have a PayPal account. 
because not because of us, because PayPal will not allow recurring charges, okay, unless the person doing the paying has a PayPal account. If a person's using PayPal as their merchant provider and you want to use MasterCard, you can go there and process a MasterCard for a one-time purchase. It's not my policy, it's PayPal's policy. Okay, so there's that. Uh, the next one that's been a really big question is, I don't have high-speed internet. Can I get it on USB sticks or DVDs or something like that? The answer is probably yes. We're all discussing this right now. It's not something we really want to do. It's going to take time and resources to get it done, and it'll probably be like $100. And the reason it's going to be like $100 or maybe $110 to do is because we have over 72 hours of video. Plus, likely we would want to bolt in the Q&A. So you're looking at like a 128-gig memory stick to do all of that. So you're looking at like 50 bucks just for us to buy the stick, plus shipping, plus time, and we're trying to run a farm and all this other stuff. So we may do that, but it won't be free and it won't be cheap. And it'll depend on demand and whether or not people are okay with that additional price. And we might make 30 bucks on that 100 bucks. By the time it's all said and done, if you got to ship it, I got to have somebody make the things. It's it's an add-on that we didn't account for. It's not something we really want to do, but if enough people want it, we'll do it. The last thing I want to say on Perma Ethos right now, though, is if you have questions, go to permaethos.com. Okay, permaethos.com. P-E-R-M-A-E-T-H-O-S.com. And up at the top of the page, you will see. A link, and the link says questions. This is a really good questions and answers plugin that we're using, and Josiah is answering questions just almost as quickly as they come in. Your question may have already been asked. They're all, you know, there's a ton of, li of them listed there. Um, so you can go through the ones that are already there. You can communicate with each other if you're on the blog with these questions, and you can get answers from our staff. Okay, so there's a little update on Permaethos. Will we launch on the 20th as planned? Maybe, maybe the 21st, maybe the 22nd, I'm not sure. How long will MSB members and Brick of Freedom members have to sign up before it goes to general public? Probably 24 to 48 hours. There's a few little nitpick things we have to make some decisions on first. All right, so that's it for Permaethos. So with that, I want to go ahead and take your first call of the day. Hello, Jack. Uh, my name is Scott. And I'm in uh, central uh, Missouri. I'm working on a uh, about 20 acres of land, uh, 10, 10 acres of so, which is open, five of which is uh, a lake, and five of which is kind of woodland, uh, mostly eastern red cedar, as this is kind of repairing uh, old pasture land, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, around the edges, of course, there's lots of autumn olive. I'm working on... Uh, rehabilitating my opinion of those and uh, seeing how I can utilize them aside from just the berries and the nitrogen fixing properties uh, of the plant itself. Uh, what can I do to use uh, to maximize that but also not promote a bunch of aggressive new growth? Um, I do understand uh, that apparently cutting them back makes them kind of want to grow back even stronger and more aggressively. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts, love the show, and appreciate all you do. Thanks. Bye. I think whenever someone looks at autumn olive and says, well, how do I prevent it from spreading, taking over, becoming too aggressive, the first most important thing to realize is that you could replace autumn olive with black locust or 
Russian olive or honey locusts or, um, what do you call them, the Osage orange or any other aggressively growing tree that, you know, you know, rapidly coppices or pollards have cut uh, and spreads through roots and shoots and things like that. And pretty much the answer is going to be the same for all of them. First of all, these plants don't really reproduce the way that we have made them out to, where they just sucker everywhere and they come up all over and, oh my God, wow. They don't really do that unless we disturb the soil around them. They don't sucker much at all unless we disturb the soil around them. They are reparative. So if we jack up the soil around them, they go out there and they start popping up root shoots. So number one, we either don't disturb the soil around them, or if we do, we manage the disturbance and we plant into the disturbance and we take out the shoots. Number two, livestock, especially sheep and goat, will generally eat just about any new shoot from any plant. I'll just it's, When it's little, it's edible. If we graze the edges of these things without letting them into the thicket itself to disturb it and piss it off, generally they'll graze away the shoots. And if we time the grazing so that we move them through at the time that the plants, depending on species and climate, are doing their most active suckering, they'll take care of it. If we mow that area, then we're not going to have a problem. If we plant bushes, shrubs, trees in a food forest style in there, we're not going to have too much runaway with the autumn olive or other species because we're just going to keep going in there and chopping and dropping it. And then when it coppices and pollards and gets more aggressive and we do it again, all we're doing is building biomass, building biomass, building biomass, and the problem is the solution. So that's the most basic answer that I can give you on how you manage any plant that you think can get out of control. Keep the area around it if it's in pasture mode or grazed or both. Don't disturb the soil around the, the plant itself. And if you do, manage the disturbance. And all of a sudden, these like evil plants that take over the world are not evil plants that take over the world anymore. It, it, it's just that we have lost sight of proper management and we have become a band-aid nation and the reason a plant like autumn olive has the reputation that it does in the first place is because it was wholesale planted as wind breaks and highway breaks and things like that with no thought other than, well, it grows anywhere, so we'll just plant a whole shit ton of it. And nothing was interplanted with it. And then we planted in areas that are routinely disturbed, like highway medians and things like that. And, you know, they go in and they do work and they throw some clover mix down there and some grass mix and maybe they hydromulch it, but probably not. And then, you know, birds crap in there with all types of autumn olive seeds or they do that work right along the edge of where autumn olive already is. And gee, it spreads in there. They denute the soil and the nitrogen fixer shows up to fix nitrogen because it's the only thing that'll grow. So the other thing you find with autumn olives is as the ground around them becomes more and more fertile, more and more productive, and more and more diverse, it actually becomes difficult to keep them alive. They only grow to about 10 feet. And that means if you put a canopy up over them that's 40 feet, and they're shaded, they start to die. They'll tolerate things like black walnut and pecan, which we'll talk about in a bit, 
But once that tree's up and shades them out, they go away. They need sun. They're not an understory plant. They're an edge plant. So they're actually easier to control than something like locust. Because locust can keep up with the canopy. Locust can get up there. Right? Locust doesn't need the edge. Locust doesn't have to either be edge or just inside edge understory with the right solar aspect. Locust can compete, man. It can grow. It can do its thing. Autumn olive is actually a lot easier to control in many ways. Now, it sounds like what you have is a lot of it. And it's probably like a big, giant, harsh thicket of it now. This is what I would say. If you're going to remove it at all, remove it very, very early in the spring before it flowers, before it buries, when all of the seed is already done, whatever the seed's going to do, and, and dig it out. I'm talking with excavator, you know, down in, dig the whole things out, and get the area diversely planted immediately and go into other shrubs and stuff like that. And some of it's going to come back and then harness it as a control or as a, as a support species at that point. It's, there's nothing wrong with cutting it. But boy, think about when you cut it. If you cut it when it's in full berry and mature berry, and now you've got seed everywhere. right? So you have to think a little bit differently there. And again, the big thing that will make any of these plants spread from suckering is disturbing the soil around them. And in general, these plants don't show up in undisturbed fertile soils. They show up in disturbed infertile soils. So if they're showing up somewhere, that means that you have disturbed infertile soil. Now what can you do with it other than is a nitrogen fixer um, and for the berries? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I don't know that it makes a very good forage for goats and things like that. I guess they would maybe use it, um, but I've never heard of it being a really valuable forage crop from the leaf perspective. It's not really a good quality wood or timber. Um, it certainly could be cut and shredded and used as a mulch. There, it, there's no doubt about that. It would be a good nitrogen-rich mulch if shredded when green. Uh, that would be another way, but you're still using it for the nitrogen. I don't know what else you can do with it. The berries are quite valuable, though, as a food source. And again, it won't go crazy on you unless you create the environment that it goes crazy in, which is disturbs unfertile soils that are unmanaged, unkept, and not diverse in species. So there you go. It's the best I can do on that one. Let's take another one. Oh, if you want to dig some of them up and send them to me, I'll take them. And let's move on. Hey, Jack. This is Low Watt Living. I just want to make a comment on how rested you sound this week after your vacation. And uh, we should probably all take that to heart and... You know, consider uh, that, you know, most of us as preppers think, you know, something could happen any minute now, you know, any time now, any day, maybe tomorrow. And we should take time out every once in a while just to relax a little bit and not be so stressed. Um, I think that's a big issue when it comes to this sort of thing. It's really easy to get... <clears throat> really ramped up on it and uh, not just step back for a minute and calm down. And you've proven that to us, I think, this week. And 
that's all I got. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad uh, you're well rested now. <laughs> Bye. I'm glad you could hear the difference. I've heard from a lot of people that you can, and I think I need to take more respites, and I don't think they always need to be 10 days. Um, I have always shut down the business between, like, the 23rd of December and the 1st of the year. Uh, right up around Christmas Eve, I just shut down. I don't do anything. I barely keep the email up, and I pretty much say don't email me unless it's really, really important. I do basic customer service. I can't log in, uh, or I sent you payment, and I haven't you know, gotten set up. And, and pretty much everything else, it's just you know, file 13. I bet many of you know what file 13 means. Anyway, um, so then you know, I'll take a vacation once in a while, and I try to usually you know, do a bunch of episodes that are predetermined to go out. And I probably, in the future, will do that, but this time I didn't because I just couldn't with everything else going on. But what I realized, so I sat back and I thought, you know what, in the last year, other than my recent fishing trip to Sanibel, I've gone fishing one time at a little farm pond. I did a sum total of zero hunting last year. I took nowhere near enough walks. And I didn't take enough mini vacations. I remember when I was broke, Okay, and sometimes you realize that you maybe you're better off broke in some some areas of your life, not all. This is what I mean by that. So I was broke. I made when I first, my first job that I got in Texas like six fifty an hour, and then I got a little bit better job, made like ten fourteen dollars an hour. Fourteen bucks an hour in the mid nineties wasn't terrible, but it wasn't that great. You know, a few years later, I was knocking down six figures, and my life got better and worse at the same time. But think back to those days when I was, you know, early 20s, hanging out with friends every weekend. I went to the lake probably 30 weekends out of the year, one way or another, and went on, you know, a dozen camping trips a year at least. And I, I, when I look at my life now, I have so much more time. In reality, if I'll use it, so much more freedom and, you know, not bragging or anything, but so much more money. I, I can promise you I'm not getting rich from this, but I do better than 14 bucks an hour. I promise you that. Um, but I love what I do so much. I get compelled to continue to do more and more and more. And I don't take enough time for myself and I don't take enough time for my wife. And I think no matter where you're at in your life in America today in the success quotient, that we all do it. And I think it's a huge mistake. And I think that, so a lot of people have two, three weeks a year of vacation. I think that a lot of times people tend to take it all in one big lump. I think we should put aside two or three days a year with that vacation time, if you have it, to take it like on a Friday or a Monday and just take a long weekend and just go do something you like and put everything to bed for a while. Just let it go. And I don't know that you always need to go somewhere. Sometimes those vacations can be right in your own backyard. It's funny to me that people come to Dallas and Fort Worth for a vacation. I'm like, really? You couldn't find anywhere better than this to go for a vacation? You know, you're, you're coming here? And they're like, oh, I want to go see Dealey Plaza where, you know, JFK was shot and, I want to go to, you know, a museum and I want to go to the Dallas Arboretum and I want to go to the Fort Worth Botanical Gardens and I would, oh yeah, all that stuff's right here. And the Dallas Zoo and the Fort Worth Zoo are awesome zoos and I'm, you know, 
Yeah, there's, you know, for the people with kids, they want to go to Six Flags or Wet n Wild. Oh, yeah, that's right here. I'm going to go to a Cowboys game at the stadium because even though it's expensive as hell, it's an awesome. And I, I just sit back and I think, you know what, there's so much right here. And then I start thinking about, like, fishing trips. I mean, within an hour to two hours of where I live, some of the best guides in the country guide for striped bass and blue cats and largemouth bass. And I know those are the things I like and maybe that you don't like, but then I, I have to just say, You do have to once in a while sit around and say, what is within two hours of my home? And make time to just let the hell go. Because if you don't, what happens is pressures build and build and build. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing wrong with this either. This might be a good day off for a lot of you guys. Set up a barbecue with friends on a Friday evening at your place. Thursday when you get off work, anything you don't have that you need, you go buy. You wake up in the morning, you're not leaving. Spend the day cooking and getting ready, drinking a few beers, listening to music, turn the freaking computer off, don't go on Facebook, don't even listen to Jack. right? Maybe if you want to listen to me while you're cooking, that's fine. Listen to my barbecue show. Make a meal for people. Have them come over, hang out, spend some time together. That would be one way. Or take a Friday off and get everything ready and do it on a Saturday afternoon. If you got a pool, hang out in the pool. Those little things like that, where you just let go of everything, are awesome. The problem is, all of our stuff, including our attachment to our jobs, and for people like me to work from home, it's really there, it's in our house. And sometimes the reason you go away is so you have to let go. So other things I could think of to take, you know, take a day, hire a guide and go fishing. Take a day and go see some museums in your town. Take a day and do something. Just don't take a day and go shopping. It won't relax you. It really won't. Take a day and go do something that disconnects you from the things That, that, gr that, that grind you and that drive you. See, there's, there's, there's two aspects to life, and we tend to forget about the one because it seems to be positive. There's the stuff that grinds us. I just don't want to do this. I want to be left alone. That we get. We understand that one. But the things that drive us, like I want to build permanent ethos, and I want to prove that it can be done, like that, for me. Like, I am going to get on the air today, and I'm going to do the best damn podcast I've ever done, period, even though it's my 1348th or whatever, right? That's important to me that I do a good job for people. That's good. That's positive. I'm going to explain to people why this is bullshit or why this is important today. It's great. I'm going to get out, and I'm going to plant five more trees today. I'm going to work out there and get this stuff done. I got so much to do. All that's great. Five years from now, when you come to this property, you're going to go, oh my God, how did this become what it is? And without that drive, it can't be. But you gotta freaking stop once in a while. You know, maybe call an old friend up and go do lunch. It doesn't always have to even be a full day. Can you take a two-hour lunch instead of a one-hour lunch one day a month or one day every other month and go meet with somebody And chill the hell out. Some, and don't talk about work. 
Don't make it a business networking. No. Talk about baseball or football or hunting or fishing or guns. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about work. Talk about your kids and what they're doing. Just chill the hell out. I'm making a commitment to myself on like the major plan things, like a hunting trip, a fishing trip, a camping trip this year to do more. But I'm also making a commitment to do, hey, honey, you know what? Let's shut down early today. Show's up. Things are done. Everything will survive. Let's put the dogs in the truck and go take a two-mile hike in the woods. And then let's bring the dogs home from the hike, drop them off, and go have lunch. Late lunch, early dinner, whatever you want to call it. Oh, by the way, before I move on to the next call, because I've gone long again, I'm sorry. I just think this is important. I got emails from people, folks, when I talked about this last week, the importance of peaceful places and things like that, that said that kind of thing is what saved their lives after coming back from overseas and other things like that. That's survivalism. But I, and I, I that's a serious note. On a humorous note with some truth to it, while we were on vacation, the tides were such that low tides were 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night. This is the best time to go look for shells, which is my wife's favorite thing to do on the beach. We started eating dinner at like old people time, like 4, 4.30. I figured out why old people eat at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's not because they really need to eat at that time. It's not so they can go home and go to bed. It's because they figured out that we're not there. And they don't have to deal with us. It's a good time to eat dinner if you're going to eat out. Anyway, let's move on to another call. Uh, this one is going to be a call for Mr. Stephen Harris. So when it's over, I'll just go ahead and play Stephen's response, and then I'll come back and we'll go to the next call. Jack, this is Dave with a question for the expert council member, Steve Harris. My question is how to set up uh, PV solar panels to run one of his stills. Currently, I have two of his stills. One's a 330-watt, that's an older one, and then a newer one, which is 580 watts. I have uh, I have four 165-watt, 24-volt solar panels, which would be about 660 watts, probably get about three to 400 during the day. Uh, I have a 1,000-watt inverter and a 30-amp charge controller. So I want to know how to set this all up. I don't really know how many batteries I need, at least two to, to make it 24 volts. Do I want to make it four and have it go up to 48 volts? Uh, I need to know how big the batteries are in amp hours. I guess they're rated. And is this going to be feasible to run one of these stills at night? So... Thank you, Jack, for all you do, and thank you, Steve Harris. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Steve Harris with Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. Now, I'm not going to repeat myself here on how to set up a great and size a great solar panel system with a battery and inverter and solar panels because I did a great job of doing that and, uh, and covering that in detail in a 30-minute panel question I did for Jack. This is the famous solar chicken coop question. Jack could not easily trench run power through his chicken coop through the rock that's just under his soil, so he asked me to do a panel question on how to set up and size a solar panel 
panel system to run ventilation fans at night as well as lights to extend his chicken lane time in the winter. So I did an entire show on how to set up any solar panel system, not just for Jack's chicken coop. I cover everything on how to set up and size the solar panel system or how to start with a small system and then scale it up. You might have heard of these improperly called solar generators. Solar generators are a scam to sell you very little for a whole lot of money. Run away. Make your own for one-tenth the price. Listen to the Solar Chicken Coop episode. If you'd like to easily listen to the Solar Chicken Coop episode, I have just now added it to www.solar1234.com. You can go there and listen to it with one click on the computer or one tap on your smartphone, or you can download it. Now, if you want this liquid gold called moonshine to barter for anything after a disaster, then you want the electric automated still I have. It looks small, but it's automated. It'll make more alcohol for you in a day than if you got one that costs four times as much as mine does. And it will do it automatically with no babysitting. All you do is add a timer and walk away. That's it. If you want to see how easy it is to add sugar to water, add in some yeast to the bucket, and then ferment your alcohol wash, and then how easy it is to put that alcohol into the still, make some of the best vodka moonshine there is, then I have a very simple, easy-to-watch 24-minute video at the very, very top of the website, imakemygas.com. You'll completely understand after watching the video, it's as easy as making coffee. All you need is sugar, water, and yeast in the, in the distiller. That's it. Nothing else. No corn, no wheat, no molasses, nothing else. Sugar, water, yeast, that's it. There's also a link to imakemygas.com at stephen1234.com. Now, if you want me to tell you how you would set up your four solar panels and with what size battery to run an electric alcohol still that draws about 580 watts for about one hour and 20 minutes while it distills its first batch of fermented sugar and water, into about 80 to 100 proof moonshine here's the answer to that you'd never use solar panels or any other source of power after a disaster to make moonshine not ever it's a fool's errand everything you have after a disaster is all you have you're not getting any more and what did i say moonshine is made from sugar and water solar panels are not a lightsaber of power and moonshine still is not a magic fountain of alcohol that endlessly makes alcohol you must use sugar as i have said it you use about 17 pounds of sugar to make six gallon and six gallons of water and that will make you about two and a half gallons of 80 proof alcohol when the crap hits the fan you are not going to start digging into your precious reserves of sugar which will be very valuable in itself just to make alcohol nor are you going to use your very precious precious sources of power be it gasoline a generator or power from solar panels to run a still to make alcohol Gasoline will be in short supply. Sugar will be in short supply. You're not getting any more of these. Even electricity from your solar panels will be in short supply because there will always be something that you want to power in your house. You can run a 580-watt alcohol still for one hour and 20 minutes to make your first batch of alcohol, which would be about a quart and a half of 80-proof alcohol, or you could use the same amount of electricity to run a 2-watt LED bulb for 16 straight days. 
If you only used that light bulb for eight hours a night, that 16 straight days would be 48 days of light for the amount of electricity you use to make your first batch of alcohol. Note, the still only runs one gallon of fermented wash at a time. To get the whole two and a half gallons of 80 proof I mentioned, you'd run it six times to get that much. But again, I said it was automated, so you could do this in two days straight with very little effort while you were still going to work during the daytime to your regular job. Now about the sugar, no big deal, right? I have solar panels, so I have plenty of energy to make alcohol, which I just showed you that you had better uses for the power. So you have sugar, so you can make plenty of alcohol. Well, if you have 17 pounds of sugar for 2.5 gallons of 80-proof alcohol, and if there are two cups in a pound of sugar, and there are 16 tablespoons in one cup, and you use two tablespoons of sugar to make a loaf of bread, then that 17 pounds of sugar would easily make over 250 loaves of bread. Yeah, 250. Actually, it's 272. So do you really want to use your very precious sugar for alcohol when you can make bread? People will trade for bread in a disaster just as easily as they will for sugar. So what is the answer, Steve? Why did I just talk you out of buying one of my moonshine or car fuel stills? Because I'm honest. Here's the answer. You make alcohol before the disaster. You make and get everything you need before a disaster. Are you going to have silver before a disaster for trading? Or are you going to go out and mine for silver with a pick and a shovel after a disaster so you can use silver for trading? Why would you do the same thing with alcohol? The answer is you would not. So while there are endless and endless supplies of sugar at Walmart and Sam's Club, you you can use that to make your trading moonshine before a disaster. Right now, sugar is less than six, six bucks or ten pounds, so you need about twelve dollars in sugar to make two and a half gallons of eighty-proof alcohol. Yeah, twelve bucks in sugar, two and a half gallons of alcohol. So you broke that down in this. You break that down into sixteen-ounce water bottles for easy easy trading and storage and barter. Then that would be about twenty bottles of eighty-proof vodka moonshine for twelve bucks in sugar. So less than a dollar per bottle, that would be, you could trade for anything as long as you're using pre-crisis sugar and, and its endless supply. Store moonshine in 16-ounce bottles for easy trading, not in quart mason jars or gallon jugs. Water bottles full of moonshine look like regular bottles of water. They hide in plain sight. And that's the thing. If you make moonshine in the USA, you are not going to tell anyone about it until after the crisis and there is no rule of law because I'm here to warn you right now that making even one drop of moonshine in the USA is a federal felony. Even having stored one drop of moonshine or untaxed liquor is a federal felony. Again, I'm warning you, making moonshine or even having moonshine is a federal felony in the United States of America. So to recap, if you want to listen to the 30-minute show I did on how to make your own solar power system of any size, it's the Solar Chicken Coop episode, and it's at solar1234.com for you to listen to on your computer or smartphone. If you want the automatic still I sell, you can buy it and see the video of how it works, then go to imakemygas.com. Buy one, we'll send it to you right away by UPS. If you want to hear all of the shows I have done with Jack, with everything from first aid to radios to generators to fuel storage and even more, then my website with, with everything on it is stephen1234.com. 
You guys have written me with some incredible stories and testimonials and endorsements over the last year from stuff you have learned and done both before and during a disaster. I've put a lot of those up on Stephen1234.com. It's worth a look. Again, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Thank you very much. Please call in some more questions, and I'll be happy to answer them. I agree with everything Mr. Harris said. Let me give you my answer to the underlying question. How the hell do I make this stuff if the shit hits the fan to the point where the dogs and cats are having puppy kittens? You don't do it with one of Stephen Stills at that point. You don't. Um, all the way up until the invention of modern electricity, and then somebody finally said, hey, we could use this stuff to make still with and made an electric still. We made alcohol with a still that used some sort of an open flame. And if you look around, there's a lot of wood out there that can be used to make open flames in various ways. And I'm not going to get into the construction techniques, but the answer to how do you make alcohol in a post-shit-hit-the-fan society is the way that they used to do it before we had electricity, which is with a conventional still that would probably be wood-fired. That's that's the answer on the other side of it. Now, the whole thing about making moonshine being illegal and everything, it is absolutely true. It is a felony, and you shouldn't do it. I'm just going to say lots of people do. And uh, government's probably not running around looking for people making, you know, a couple quarts of moonshine for their own personal use. There is a way to do it completely legally, and that means that you get a permit to make fuels, and it's up to you whether you do that or not. I'm just saying that, you know, maybe the government doesn't need to know everything everybody does. Um, there are a lot of places selling stills right now, openly, uh, as moonshine stills. Not even just saying you can make fuel with this, just saying this is going to make, you know. And there's a pretty active movement in America today to get home distillation legalized. I just don't know that the political climate is anywhere where that's going to happen. Because this is not something that really can be done at the state level. Well, it's not something that really can be done at the state level because it's federal law that prohibits the manufacture. And there's also a lot of times state laws that reinforce the federal law, but there's not, there's no place where you could just say, well, in Texas now it's legal to do home distillation, where you would not be in conflict with federal law. Um, now, is it something the state could stand up under the, 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 the 10th Amendment and say, if you're using it in Texas, if you're not making it for sale, and you're using it at home, and it doesn't leave the state, it's not the federal government's business? Yeah, but, see, case law is a pain in the ass, so there's this whole, I can't remember the name of the case, but this case that occurred under Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration where the Supreme Court said that this farmer uh, that wasn't going to allow his grain to be sold under the price fixing that FDR put into place uh, said that, well, the federal government doesn't have anything to say about it because I'm not selling it at all. So it, interstate commerce doesn't apply because I'm not selling it. I'm not even selling it. I'm just I'm refusing to sell it. I'm keeping it. And... The case was lost, and what the Supreme Court said, and I believe this was an unconstitutional decision, but it's now case law, incitable, would have to be reversed by the Supreme Court for it to no longer be applicable, was that because the guy didn't sell, he had an effect on the total market and was circumventing the federal law, and therefore the law still did apply to him. And he was forced to sell his grain. 
So the federal government could just use that as, as, as a, a case law and, and appeal that state's law and say, because alcohol is federally regulated and because alcohol is sold within the different states, if the person then makes their own alcohol and doesn't purchase it, it interferes with the international or the national market, the interstate market. But yet states have been able to implement micro distillation, uh, you know, micro distilleries. Uh, they're popping up all over the place here in Texas. But those are subject to the same taxes in the federal government gets their money. So I don't know that there's a big advantage to the federal government, the Congress clowns, to actually pass a law that says, you know what, you guys can make your own up to X amount, the way they do with wine and, and, and beer. So don't mess around with this. You know, If you're going to do what you're going to do, Don't talk about it. Don't advertise it. But a thing that looks like a coffee maker is probably less obvious than a thing that looks like a great big copper thing with tubes and smoke coming out of it. Just saying. One more thing. A still like Stephen sells is for making alcohol now. It is a modern tool for a modern world with modern conveniences. Just like your car is. And just like you'd say, well, if the shit has hit the fan, everything's gone to pot, you can't get gasoline, the car is no longer a valid option, especially for day-to-day -day driving. We've got to find another mode of transportation. All right? GPS. Satellites are knocked out. It doesn't work, but we use it today. But if it would be good if you were going to rely on it post and pre that you knew how the GPS worked and you knew basic land navigation. That can be applied to many things, including this still. Anyway, let's go ahead and take the next call. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Mark from New Jersey. Just an update on the uh, egg-eating chickens. Um, for some reason, I came home on Tuesday this week, and I had a dead chicken at home, and um, I realized that the dead chicken was my broody chicken. Now, the broody chicken used to sit in the coop most of the day, protecting her egg, and uh, since, the, since her death, I've noticed that I'm getting a regular egg production. So I wonder if it was the broody chicken eating my eggs. Hey, thanks for the show, and I uh, really appreciate it. Have a great day. It's possible, but I doubt it. Um, I think more likely what happened is, if you because you called last time, you said the birds were getting out more and going away. Well, if she was sitting in, like, the preferred egg box, brooding, and sitting there on her eggs... And you didn't tell me you had this broody chicken when you called that first question in? Then the other chickens are probably like, well, can't lay my eggs there. Gotta go do it somewhere else. It's a funny thing with these damn birds. You can give them six egg boxes and they all want to lay in one. And they get stuck on a place. For a long time I had them laying behind the door in my coop. Now they're back to laying in one, there's two boxes sitting right next to each other. Everybody wants to lay in the same damn box. So much so, these boxes are really big enough for one chicken, and I've gone in there and seen them in like shotgun shells, head one way, butt the other way, opposite each other, with their butts shoved in there, laying at the same damn time. Now, the door was good enough last week, but now everybody wants in the box. So, I think that's likely, and if your bird died, now things happen and chickens die. But it could be that she died because she wouldn't get enough nutrients and nourishment and water when she was she went broody and she wouldn't come off brood and she, maybe she didn't hatch any eggs or whatever. 
Well, if she was eating eggs, she probably would have had very high-quality nutrient, and she would have got enough fluid. So if she was eating eggs, she would have been less... I'm not saying it's impossible. She would have been less likely to die. I think now that I know you had a broody bird, it's more likely that your broody bird was disrupting everybody else's cycles, and they were going somewhere... And look hard for a big pile of eggs somewhere. You might have them and just not realize it. Um, my flooring in my coop has these little spaces, and the one day I looked behind the space, and I found like 18 small white eggs from my Faomis. They were going back in that hole and laying in there. One day we moved a vehicle that hadn't moved for like a month back when the birds were free-range, and there were like 30 eggs underneath the vehicle. We found them on shelves in our garage when we left the door open, you would be surprised the places a chicken will lay eggs. And the reason to look in these places and see if you can find them is if they sit there long enough, eventually they can get you know busted open and stink really bad. Uh, they also might be more likely to attract predators and things like that. So take a look around, and don't be surprised if you have a, an Easter egg hunt in, in May and find a big stockpile somewhere. It's very, very probable that those girls were still laying eggs, that they weren't being eaten, and they were just hiding them because the place they wanted to lay them was occupied by a bitchy chicken. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Jesse in San Diego. Uh, I was wondering, what are some good permaculture strategies for designing properties to help protect them from fire? Uh, I don't know if you know, but here in San Diego, these past couple of days, we've had a bunch of wildfires. I was driving around yesterday watching half the county burn. I was wondering and looking at properties going, what could I do or how could I design this property to help protect these things? And, you know, quite frankly, even after listening to Jeff, I couldn't come up with any. So uh, if you have any ideas, I'd love to hear them. Uh, and uh, have a good one, man. Always appreciate it. I have to say that when it comes to permaculture, uh, fire prevention design is one of my weaker areas where I, I don't have the in-depth understanding about it the way that I do about many other aspects of permaculture. So I'm not the best person to answer this. I might get a council member to do some more on it, but I am going to tell you a little bit about it. Number one, I'm going to tell you that this, this kind of question is exactly why I think everybody that's serious about permaculture should spend the money and get a copy of the Permaculture Designer's Manual by Bill Mollison. And if you were to turn to page 451 of that design manual, you'll find section 12.16 and a whole handful of pages on fire design. Uh, that talk about things like fires need fuel supply, oxygen supply, preheating, and unstable air masses to become runaway fires, and how to design with those considerations in mind. Things like if you do what everybody does, which is put your house up on top of a hill for a view, then especially depending on slope and things like that, you set your house to be a matchstick because fire moves uphill. And for every 10% you increase grade, the speed at which fire moves Doubles. Got that? Got that? If fire's going uphill and you increase the grade by 10%, you double the speed that it moves every time. So if you go from a 0% grade to a 10% grade, you double it, right? If you go to a 20% grade, you double it again. If you go to a 30% grade, you double it again. So 
low-lying valleys, wet areas are where you would you would go. Some of the things I've gleaned from the designer manual when I looked at this section that I'm referencing uh, that I also would kind of say already makes sense, water features. So putting in water features as fire breaks, roads, removing excess fuel, putting in swales. Swales make good fire breaks, and you could flood them. So if you had swales around your dwelling and you knew a fire was coming and you had dams that could be drained or emptied or just partially drained, you could flood your swale system as the fire approached. Another thing I picked up was the concept that you, what you can do to help your roof be less likely to catch. Now, this isn't going to, the fire comes right up to your house, you got a problem. But when you're talking about fly ash and embers flying and hitting roofs and catching roofs on fires, which is a lot of times the way a lot of these fires spread, one thing you can do to, to minimize that to a degree, plug all your gutters and flood your rain gutters. I remember listening to Bill Mollison with one of his PDCs say that one of the best things you could plant is a firebreak or trees. And the class was like, what? What? He's like, big trees like walnuts and oaks. Huge, plant big trees. The biggest, fastest, largest, biggest hardwood growing tree you can get. Plant a whole row of them right where the fire would approach from. And he said, if you don't believe me, you ever try to light one of those with a match? That actually big, giant, honking wood trees act as fire breaks. I don't know that I'm sold on that one. But I can tell you this, every dadgone thing that crazy old man says that you ever check out ends up being true. But sometimes you can't tell if he's just messing with you or he's being serious. But I can see there can be some validity to that because I've been in forests that have had major burns where a lot of the understories burned out, but the big trees are just sitting there with scorched bark. So I've seen evidence that there could be some, you know, re but to me, the dead timber in the top and things falling out and it just seems like, I don't know that I trust that one. But I, I think that I've actually never seen a really in-depth, good module on fire prevention with permaculture. And I'm thinking that maybe it's something that I can get Jeff Lawton to do a mini-segment, like a 15-minute segment for us on. And I'm going to reach out to him today and see if I can do that. But those are my you know, best answers for you, is think about your fire sector, the approach of your fire sector, remove fuels from that sector, block the unstable winds, put in fire breaks in the form of both water features and gaps. If you have a really dry period, at least in certain areas that are most likely to be your biggest threat, some fire, cut your grasses short in those areas. Uh, continue to graze those areas. Uh, animals do a lot to help keep down the potential for wildfire. If, you, if you're really concerned about this, putting in water features and swales around your property and thinking about gravity feed with water, the ability to flood the swales quickly if necessary, and don't build your house on the top of a hill. Those are the best answers I have for that. Uh, before I take another call, I'm going to go ahead and play John Pugliano's. It seems like we're going to call the, the Pugliano segment of the week. He's got some stuff for us today uh, about the stock market. Uh, John is a member of our expert council, but he's kind of taken the bull by the horns and decided if there's not a question, he's just going to talk about something that's going on. So, John, what do you got for us this week? 
This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth, and I have some comments about this stock market correction. Now, some of you may be saying, what stock market correction? The S&P 500, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, these blue-chip indexes are all trading at or near all-time market highs. The market isn't a correction. Well, it isn't a correction, and the reason for that is the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000. Uh, these are the indexes where you find the small-cap stocks, the leading innovating companies, the, the cloud computing, the Internet companies, the companies where we're going to find all the future growth for the economy. They're going to find those in the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000. Those, those indexes have been trading flat to down all year. The Russell 2000 has been down as much as 10% for the year. Uh, it's fluctuating at or above its 200-day moving average, which is a severe red flag warning sign. The NASDAQ can't seem to get above its 50-day moving average, which, uh, again, is very a uh, very concerning, cautious sign. So, so what's going on here? Well, obviously, investment fund managers are rotating out of these um, higher-risk, higher-earning potential stocks, and moving that into safer blue chip, you know, mature type companies that you'd find on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You have heard on this show many times where Jack talks about the constraints that money managers have, mutual fund managers have, where they're mandated to be into the stock market, uh, what, you know, based on whatever percent they're supposed to be invested. So, um, a growth fund may have to invest 80 or 100% of its of its money in a stock, and even if it's in, in, in the stock market, even if it thinks that the market is going to come go through a severe correction, it can't sell all of its stocks and move into cash. It has to remain, you know, 80 or 90 percent in the stocks. So what the manager has to do then is find the the stocks that he feels are most likely to perform well during the correction. Um, that might be what we're seeing right now. I can't guarantee that. I don't have any inside information on that. It just appears when you look at the price and the volume ratios that's happening, or that's currently occurring in the market, that that rotation is what's taking place. And what concerns me about that is that these supposed safe haven stocks that they're moving their money into may not be very safe. And I don't mean the companies aren't safe. I mean the stocks aren't safe. And, and there's a definite difference between the health of a company versus the health and performance of a stock. Let's look at a few of these. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Microsoft, they're all blue chip stocks on the trading uh, in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh, Coca-Cola has a 20 times earnings multiple, which is high for a blue chip company, but it's particularly high when you consider that Coke has uh, estimated that their earnings for the year are going to grow 0%. There will be no growth in Coke's earnings for 2014. Um, McDonald's, likewise, they have a, a 19 times earnings. Their growth prospects for the year are only 4%. Um, and, and, and actually, they've been coming in low in previous quarters, so who knows if they'll even hit that. Microsoft has a more reasonable price-to-earnings ratio. It's only trading at 15 times earnings. However, Microsoft is not only project, is only not projecting an earnings increase, it's projecting an earnings decrease. Microsoft is expected to um, drop its earnings by about 2% for the year. So you can see that, that these blue-chip companies, although the companies are safe, they're not going to go out of business, um, Microsoft, McDonald's, Coke, they're all going to continue paying their dividend. That's not the problem. The problem is that their stocks could be overvaluated, and and for them to drop 10 15% um, 
is something that could be very likely. Will it happen? I have no idea. When will it happen? I have no idea. The important thing to know is that no one, no talking head on TV, no one can guarantee you that they know what's going to happen in the marketplace. And that's why we always must proceed with caution, particularly when we're in a very turbulent time, when we see that the market is in a malaise like it's in right now. We should be very concerned that these growth indexes are moving down while the old stodgy blue chip stocks are moving up. And I encourage everybody to always think of cash as a viable option. You usually only hear people talk about, uh, the investment advisors always talk about investing in stocks or investing in bonds. They don't ever talk about investing in cash. Cash is a viable investment, and it's something that you, that you as an individual investor should consider, particularly in times of, of a turbulent market. Going to cash is a very safe way to not lose anything. And uh, as always, I encourage you to invest with caution. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano, Investable Wealth. Before I take the next call, I actually want to add some things to uh, to John's analysis. Number one, I agree with everything he said about why. Now, here's the thing. Somebody, not a financial advisor, somebody, uh, a redneck from coal mining region of Pennsylvania, said back around 2010, 2011, I'm moving all of my money into blue-chip dividend-producing stocks because that's where all the big money is going right now, and I follow the big money. And it would become in vogue, and this would happen. And I even mentioned this in a video series I did called Why QE3 Will Work, Parts 1, 2, and 3, where I was told I was crazy, QE would never work, and no one listened to what I was actually saying that said things like that because I wasn't saying it would work forever. I said it would work for now, and here's how it would work, and here's how it would inflate the market and things like that. And I mentioned things like the money moving to the blue-chip stocks in there as well. So this doesn't surprise me, and this is what I've always said. When everybody starts doing something, it's time to at least start thinking about stopping doing it. Like, John, I don't know when this is going to happen or when this correction is going to come. I will go out and say, yeah, it will. The question is, will it come from where we are or where we're going? Will it continue to rise before the correction uh, is initiated? Here's my analysis. Investors can't make money anywhere right now. They can't. Other than equities or well-time commodities. When you talk about a place to just sit your money and earn some interest, interest rates are through the floor. Uh, artificially manipulated down to try to resurrect the economy, prime rate, you know, and almost nothing. Um, interbank lending rate at zero in some cases. There's no money in parking your money right now. Well, people with lots of money, whether they're managing nations or corporations that have cash reserves, even though what John said is true, that there is a time to put your money in cash, generally can only leave their money in cash. Because the problem with cash as an investment is we know it's a declining investment in value. We know that simply due to inflation, if inflation is 2%, holding cash for the long term loses 2% per annum, and we know the number is actually bigger. So for you that you're trying to protect a couple hundred thousand dollars, there's nothing wrong with moving to cash and waiting a year. You're better off losing 2% on your money than losing 50% on your money, which is possible at times. So that's fine. But when you are a large corporation, like some of the companies John mentioned, or a bank, this is key too, right? There's another source of where this money's coming from, at banks. 
and you're sitting on money, some of that money has to be producing a return for you. Or if you're sitting on pensions and retirement accounts, some of that money has to be earning a return. It cannot just sit there. So when you wear out everything else, eventually you turn and you look and you say, well, pfft, Exxon pays a dividend. Merck pays a dividend. Procter and Gamble pays a dividend. All these companies pay dividends. It's not a lot of money, but it's a couple, three points. It's more than I get anywhere else. And the stocks are generally pretty good investments over the long term. So a lot of money got parked there, and more and more money's been parked there. This is when I think the exodus will come, and I'd really love to hear John follow up on this and his, his, his analysis of this. When the investor looks at the stock and says, I can now take this money and do better with a safe investment elsewhere, where the price of the share goes high enough that I could take the same money out, put it somewhere safer, and get at least the percentage points that I'm making on the freaking dividend. That that spells the exit strategy. When the opportunity is better elsewhere, with the inherent safety or greater, the money will move. That's my thoughts. Let's go ahead and take another one of your calls. Hi, Jack. Richard from Idaho. My question is on making compost slash worm tea using the juices that come out of a worm bed. Background, my family, uh, my parents had, had worm beds for many, many, many years, which is the reason that now that I'm a little bit more settled, I've started to do it myself. Uh, they would just drain the juice straight out of the bins into various jugs and mix that along with the castings right into the... Uh, into the soil during spring planting season. My question is, is that I've seen uh, different things on site saying that you shouldn't put, uh, if you know, shouldn't put the tea directly into the ground due to the fact there might be toxins in the plant, and that you should a either uh, cycle it back through the bins, i.e., pouring it back in, letting it cycle through twice, or two, make a compost tea of it. Um, sort of like how they do the aeration and, and those types of methods for making compost tea. I was wondering if you had any insight into that or whether or not I could just put it directly and if it's really going to be that, uh, that dangerous. So anyway, thanks, Jack. Bye. I got to start this one out with remember that anybody can say anything on the Internet, even if it's not true, especially when it's not true and they don't know what the hell they're talking about and they think they do. So... Is there a case for using worm juice and or manures and or compost or a combination to make teas and aerate them and mix them and spread them that way? Yeah. Is it because you shouldn't do it with straight worm juice out of a worm bin? Uh, no. Because what does shouldn't do it mean? Well, you shouldn't do that. Well, why not? Uh, it'll burn the plants. Well, it doesn't burn plants. It just doesn't. You can use worm juice out of a worm bin straight away. Or you should run it back through the worm bed, dump it in the top, and let it come back out the bottom. Why? What possible rationale? It's going to filter in some way? It came out of there. All you're going to do is float out your freaking worms. If it doesn't drain quickly enough through there, you're going to increase the moisture in your worm bin to the point where you might drown some worms. You've accomplished nothing. So, when the whole preface of you shouldn't do this, I'm just going to just shit can that and say that's, that's BS. Let's talk about why you may not want to choose to do that with every bit of that warm tea or warm juice that you get out of there. It's really good stuff. 
It's really, really good stuff. So if you make a tea out of it, especially if you combine it with something like compost tea, or if you take your worm juice and you add it to water and you put a great big, basically call it a tea bag of compost in there and a great big tea bag of worm castings in there and, oh, I don't know, like a cup of sugar in there or a couple cups of dried molasses in there and you mix it up and you aerate that. All those little microorganisms in there, you start feeding them. And you know what happens to little creatures like that when you give them food? They make whoopee and they make more little creatures and then they make more excrement and the excrement feeds other little creatures that start dividing and having whoopee and making more. And you get more and more and more. And then you give them oxygen and then they go, I feel good now. And when you give microorganisms oxygen and you create a highly aerobic environment, you supercharge the good guys and you create an environment that is not suitable to the bad guys. When it comes to soil health, that when you look at soil under a microscope, if you see lots of things that thrive and survive in anaerobic environments, you're going to have soil that's not very good, that's not very full of the right kind of life, that doesn't have good tilth, that even if it has the nutrients the plants need, it's not available to them. When you see lots of little creatures and a whole little food web going on under there, of the creatures that do well in aerobic environments, oxygen-rich environments, now you're going to have good soil health. Now the plants can actually get what they're after. Now the plants that have the ability to use the excites and touch rocks with fungal relationships and pull off the nutrient the other plant can't get and make it available to the other animals and the other plants... Now those plants can do their jobs. So the reason that you would get like a great big tank and throw a pump in there or an air stone or something and mix all this stuff together and then spray it everywhere isn't because you shouldn't use it directly. It's because you can use it differently in ways that may magnify the effect over a greater area. If you're just, you know, fertilizing five or six little beds then there's no reason to not just spread that stuff out. Maybe mix it two to one just so that it spreads out more and you get more out of it. But you don't. But if you're trying to recharge a half of an acre, a quarter of an acre, even a tenth of an acre, putting that stuff into a cocktail and blowing it up, can you use the Vortex Brewer that Evan, uh, Evan sells? Yeah, you sure can. It's expensive, though. I'm not totally sold on the Vortex Brewer. I, I'm really not. Um... I'm not, I'm not saying I don't think it works. I'm saying I don't know that it works so much better than what you could do with something else that I would buy it. So here's my thought. If you've got a great big tank that you could spray out of one way or another, a purpose-made one or one you build for yourself, and you took a small submersible pond pump and you put it in there and you ran a hose out of the top of it and instead of pushing it up out of the, the, the water so it makes like a waterfall, you put it on an angle and turn it on its side so it created a spin cycle inside a tank. And you made that water slosh around there, slosh around there. You ran that for an hour. And if on top of it you took a big aquarium pump and a big air stone and stuck it in there and ran that at the same time, I think you'd get most of what you would get out of anything else. And you could do that for a lot less money. And it could be done right in the sprayer, so then you could go out and spray it, either you know, it's a sprayer you wheel around by hand and spray, or something you drive around with a tractor and spray. And I think there's a lot of value in that. It's what I'm looking to figure out how to do that here right now. I've got a big enough piece of property 
and I've got places that I'm cultivating intensively that I want to do this, and I've got tons of pasture that I just don't have time to get to yet, and I need to do something to bring the life into it. And these, these types of techniques are what I'm going to use. But it's not because I shouldn't do the other thing. It's because I can take this, this resource and magnify it and multiply it and do more with it. So in that way, you could say, well, you shouldn't do that because if you did this, you'd get more out of it. But usually when I see things like that on websites, people think it's not safe, it's toxic, it's too concentrated, it burns, it's evil, it's, it's, you know, it causes problems for the end. It's all bullshit. If you take concentrated worm tea and put it in your garden, all you're going to do is get a better garden. Just that you might be able to do more if you leverage the asset. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Tommy from Denison, Texas. Uh, what's the deal with all of the videos coming out uh, with the cops shooting dogs? Uh, has this always been an issue, and it's just more apparent now with social, social media? Um, are they not trained to use less than lethal force first? I mean, like pepper spray or something? Is this the canary in the coal mines to the rise of a police state? I mean, love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Okay, I think in general, the answer to the question, are cops more prone to shoot dogs today than 10 years ago, is unfortunately no. I do think it's because there's more citizens that when a police officer shows up on scene and they see something go on, especially when they feel like something ain't right here, out comes the smartphone. And we've gotten to a point where almost every phone that anybody gets for a new plan or a new phone today has a pretty good video uh, capability on it. So it's not just that video phones exist, because they have for a long time. We've been able to shoot video with our phones for quite a while. But high-quality you know, video phones that people are comfortable using exist in greater numbers today than at any time in history. And I think it's a very good thing, because people are actually seeing what's going on, and not just with dogs and other things like that. Here's what I think the issue is. I think it's twofold. I think, one, officers have the right, based on departmental procedures and law, to shoot any animal that they feel is a threat to their personal safety. End of story. Period. And no one's going to question it. Period. And I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong. I think that there should be some level of requirement that the animal was actually a threat because I've seen animals shot that were clearly not a threat. I'll also say, though, getting bit sucks. And you don't know when a dog's going to bite, and dogs can move pretty fast. Um, a dog is faster than you, period. A dog is faster than you. But, yes, a dog could be repelled with pepper spray, but from the cop's perspective... I've pissed off the dog now, and it runs away. Now it's a threat to others. I think there's a point at which we have to bifurcate between the two. There are places where it's tragic, but I get why the officer acted. There's places where I think the cop should be hauled out in the street, have his ass kicked at minimum, and no longer be a police officer. I've seen dog shootings where you go, that was not justified, that was not justified, that was not justified, and that son of a bitch should not have a freaking badge. And why the hell you brother officers don't take that guy to the woodshed, I don't understand. There's so many things that cops do that are good and necessary, and thank you 
thank you, thank you. And there's so many cops out there that are son of a bitch and pricks that do things that are illegal and immoral and wrong. And the, those officers that stand there and see it happen, and you do not speak up, and you don't do anything about it, take your badge off right now, throw it in the damn garbage, you do not deserve to be a cop any more than the guy that acted. You are to be the first, the first, the first line against Officers acting immorally, illegally, and improperly. The first. Not internal affairs, not citizen watch groups, not the chief, you. The guy right next to the guy that acts that way. If you see a freaking dog that is clearly not a threat to anybody, and you see one of your fellow officers draw their weapon, and you don't say anything, you're as responsible for shooting that dog as the guy that pulled the trigger, and both of you should be fired. And if the dog is a legitimate threat, and that's what you feel you have to do, I understand. And if you think I'm too hard on cops, Monday, I'm going to point out a place where we have this video circulating around right now, where everybody's going, look what they did to this poor woman, and the woman was an idiot, and the cop acted properly. And I would, on a jury, say she resisted arrest. And they would get a conviction vote from me. And I've seen dogs shot where I went, that dog, you don't know. She's just not sure. And maybe you got to start with the officer. I've seen it where I wanted to get the guy that did it and kick his freaking ass the second I saw it. Use your damn judgment. Use your damn judgment. But there is a fundamental reality here. A dog's life is not viewed equal with a human's life, nor should it be. Nor should it be. But there is something that makes a prick pull a gun on an animal that is not a clear threat and kill it that tells me that that son of a bitch should not be entrusted with the right and the authority to incarcerate people, to put guns in people's face, to spray people with pepper spray, to take away people's liberties, to put handcuffs on people. The son of a bitch with that psychology does not need to have that job. When we take a person and put a badge on them, and give them the authority to to take away a person's rights. That's what an arrest is. It's a removal, at least temporarily, of the individual's rights, sometimes with cause and sometimes with an error in judgment. But one way or another, we have said to you, when we give you a badge, you have authority that a citizen without your badge does not have. If I did what many police officers do, rightfully, I would go to federal prison for kidnapping, amongst other charges. Okay, You're literally kidnapping somebody, legally, as a law enforcement officer, when you place them under arrest. You're taking them through the use of force, against their will, to a place that they don't want to go, and holding them there. Now... If the person just beat up 27 children with a hammer and put them all in the hospital, that's where that son of a bitch needs to be. And there's many other infractions at different times where that person needs to go there, and they need to be handled with the level necessary to defuse the situation. But yes, when you look at the totality of officers shooting people's dogs, And the way in which they abuse people that they arrest, there is something underneath the surface here that's very dangerous. And I'm telling you, if you watch it, 
I'm not talking to the guys doing it. I'm not talking to the guys doing it. They won't listen. I'm talking to the guys that do the job right, but you see it, and you don't say anything, and you don't do anything. You're a freaking coward. You do not deserve your badge. Stand up, man up, and do the right thing. Speak, act, and be. The man that you're supposed to be, the woman you're supposed to be, when they put that badge on you. Understand, you serve the very citizen that you're arresting. And sometimes you shouldn't have to because the guy is scum. But most of the time, most of the time, people, even the people that are arrested with cause are in general not bad people. I understand you have to protect your lives and the lives of your brother and sister officers. I have no qualms about that. But in general, abuse by law enforcement is on the rise. And as big a problem as I have with the people doing it, I have a bigger problem with those of you that don't speak up, that don't act, that don't protect the citizens you swore to protect, not from the criminals, but from the criminals in your ranks with a badge. I understand brotherhood, and I understand fraternity. I'm a soldier. I did that for a short period of my life, but I will always be a soldier. They say there's no such thing as a former Marine, just prior service. Let me tell you something. There's no such thing as a former soldier either. It goes with you forever. And there's a brotherhood when I meet someone and they say they've served in any branch, but especially the Army and especially in the Airborne. It's immediate. It's a kinship. I get it. But when you turn your back on that which makes the brotherhood noble, you are not part of the brotherhood any longer stand by your brothers but when someone disgraces what you stand for they have chosen voluntarily to no longer be in your brotherhood stop being cowards officers don't do it and if you're pissed and you're saying I'm not a coward I'm the one that always speaks up don't be pissed because I'm not talking to you And I know many of you are out there, and I respect you, and I appreciate you. And I do understand, before you write me, that sometimes when we see a video, we don't know the whole story. I get that. But I know sometimes we do. Anyway, let's take a... Jack, this is Matt from Oklahoma, and I have a question about Google Beds. What are the concerns with acquiring termites in your home from using wood for Google beds. Is it something you need to worry about? Do you need to inspect the wood and discard pieces that have obvious infestation, or is it a worry at all? Uh, what kind of precautions can you take to prevent the transference of termites from a wood bed to your house? Uh, it's a concern that uh, I have and a couple of other people I know that listen to the show have. So... Uh, I'd like to hear your comments on this. Thank you. Uh, for those that have never, well, let me just back up real quick and just say I'm sorry for snapping out a little bit like that, except I do not hide my passion about things that I care about deeply from this audience. Um, and again, I do want to state that on Monday, 
I am going to talk about a video that's going on around right now where the liberty movement is holding it up as an example of officers abusing someone's liberty, and the person that was arrested is a moron and should have been arrested. So I do understand the other side of the equation, and we're going to talk about that on Monday. Back to this, though. Hula culture, for those that have never heard the term before because you're a new listener, means we uh, – well, it really means high culture or hill culture in, in Germany, Austria, where it, the concept originated uh, in its current form. But um, it is in, often done in those situations where you have a whole bunch of brush and wood and stuff that's organic matter that needs to have something done with it. So before you build the mound, you lay it down, you build the mound over it, so you get rid of it, so to speak. And it – then has this awesome effect of nutrient accumulation and feeding microorganisms and above all reducing irrigation because the wood core acts like a wick and pulls moisture from below the surface up to the surface, making the plants more drought resistant. So in America, we have adopted this in uh, just dozens of ways. We've done what we always do. We take good things and we make them better. And we've done things from just building beds that look like standard raised beds that are square and just there's a hole under them full of wood to, you know, doing this in just a ton of different ways. And if you just Google Hugo culture, you'll find all that. So just for people who didn't know, you're burying wood. So if I had two questions that I get the most about Hugo culture would be, can I use wood chips in a Hugo culture bed instead of whole pieces of wood? Yes. I, you can ask it a million times. I'm still going to say yes. The other one would be, what about termites? Okay. If you build a hugo culture bed, like right up against the side of your house, especially a wood house, wood frame house, which most houses, even the brick houses are wood framed, uh, and especially in an environment where the ground is suitable for termites to go subterranean, you're asking for trouble. In any other situation, the answer is you shouldn't care. Well, if I build a hugo bed out in my backyard, there'll be termites in there eventually. There might be. Very well might be. And they're probably there anyway. Um, it's funny to me. It's funny to me, really. I've had termites get into a house once. And we found them, and it wasn't that big of a deal. They didn't do very much damage, and we had them treated, and we knocked them down, and they were gone, and we never had a problem again. But uh, this, is, this is how they got in our house. So we had a very wet spring, so they were more active than normal. And uh, we had a wooden fence like many suburbs in America do, and it was a pretty old wood fence. So even though the wood was pressure treated, the, 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 the posts that had been in the ground for probably 15 years had lost all of their pressure treating and gotten to a point where termites would get in the post. So there was, of course, you know, like typical suburban lots, the fence came right up to the side of the house. So there was a post in the ground just a few inches from the foundation, and it just so happened that right on the other side of that wall was a bathroom. So when you have a bathroom, you obviously have places where pipes go through foundations, and even though they're supposed to fill all those little holes in with foam and stuff like that, sometimes it falls away, sometimes they didn't do enough there. It's a good place for entry. So the termites migrated from the fence post into the bathroom. And I wonder how many people that are concerned that a hugel culture bed will cultivate termites and make them come from miles around for your one pile of wood within a thousand billion miles, and they'll all come to your house and eat your house and kill you by collapsing your house on you while you sleep, have wooden fence posts right up against the side of their house. I also wonder how many people have, like, flower beds right outside of their house with wood mulch on top of them, and it, the wood mulch goes right up to the side of the house. Now, I can tell you for a fact 
that I have in many instances seen with heavily wood-mulched beds, termites in the beds. I've seen flower pots with plantings in them, heavily wood-mulched, and termites in the flower pots. So it's interesting that the wood core bed would somehow differ from the wooden post in the ground next to the house or the wood-mulched bed next to the house. Basically, as I'm saying again, unless you've built the wood core bed up against your house, you probably have nothing to worry about because termites are everywhere. They're not evil. They're evil once they're in your house because what they'll do to it. But in general, they're not a they're not a bad creature. They're not a horrible thing that should be eliminated from the face of the earth. They serve a very important function as decomposers in our wood-based, you know, our heavy carbon-based wood systems that need to be broken down. They're one of the main ways that wood gets processed. Fungus, termites, your two biggest ways. So, again, would I worry about putting a wood core bed in? I never have. And I have to say this. This is interesting. I've built a lot of them. I've got over 400 feet of them sitting right outside of my property. I've seen a lot of termites in my day. I actually haven't ever seen any of them in hugel beds. I'm not saying they won't happen. It would seem to me that they would, but I've actually not seen it happen yet. But I've seen them in a lot of other instances. Heavy, deep wood mulch and decomposing logs on the surface. It may be the case that buried wood is actually less likely to inhabit, be inhabited by termites. That they like to live in the dirt and feed in the wood that's on the surface or above the surface or just below the surface versus wood that has a foot of cover. It may just be that it's harder for them to find it. And that would be my best guess. That a termite that is looking for a new home, you know, they have a swarm and they breed and they're looking at a new colony, looking for a new home, is going to seek out something it can find easily. And if a wood core is buried beneath a foot of soil, it's not so easy for them to find it. They may eventually get in there, but they're more likely to kind of migrate in there because they found some other source of wood structure to work with. But no, I don't worry about it. Again, but I also don't build them, you know, a couple feet away from the side of my house. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Matt, Northeast Oklahoma. I have a question about um, allelopathic properties and the breakdown. I understand uh, you, you've, you've said, I think con trees have some allelopathic properties. What other trees might I, I have walnuts on the property? Um, and uh, I think I even got a few Osage horns. Anyways, mulching them down. We've um, <laughs> started a hoogal bed with some of this in it before um, I realized that it had allelopathic properties. Is there a way for me to mulch it, compost it, and to break that down? What are the detrimental effects? How long do they last? I'm really unsure. Um, I think I've actually got a mulch pile going in my garden with some in it. Is it the leaves? Is it some of the husks? Is it, is it the bark? Um, anyways, if you could expound on that a little bit. And then kind of the same thing with Bermuda grass. Can that be composted to where I don't worry about getting any of that stuff coming back in, in beds and in garden spaces. Appreciate all you do. Bye. 
So, um, let's start off with, well, first of all, you snuck into questions. Clever. Um, but uh, let's talk about, you know, the, the basic question is, can you compost things like black walnut and hickory and butternut and other walnut species of con, these, these trees that have this allopathic effect from something called juglone? Um, and, and the answer is you can, but you probably shouldn't. It's pretty persistent. It sticks around for a while. A lot of times if you cut down a walnut tree, you'll find that the trees that are sensitive to juglone won't grow in that area for several years as the plant continues to release this, this chemical, and it also moves very slow. So it sticks around a while, and it takes a long time for it to biologically break down. Now, there's some good news in that the plants actually convert it to something else, and I don't remember what it's called. It's a different form of the chemical, and that's what kills the plant. But the very nature of plants trying to grow and converting it, trying to grow and converting it, eventually wear it out. If you compost it, you're probably going to end up with a lot of it in your compost, though. And you're going to have a compost that's allopathic to certain species. Now, let's understand something. It's, it is not the case that juglone kills everything. So let's talk about some of the things that you can grow around walnuts and, and things like that. Some of it, which is definitely, um, producing something edible for you. But look at trees, uh, maples, uh, red cedar, buckeye, sweet gum, poplar, birch, most birches, especially river birches, uh, other juglone species like hickories and things like that. So that bed would have no problem growing more walnuts for you if you wanted it to, or growing some hickories or something like that. Um, black locust, but that's also another allopathic species, honey locust, elms. Um, some of the things, though, that would grow you something you could eat, which is probably what you want out of a hugel bed from trees, mulberry and pawpaw, and most of your prunus species, your plums, your peaches, and things like that, especially if they're grown on their own rootstock. Uh, instead of some kind of designer dwarf root stock or something like that. Black cherry is native to the same forests that black walnut is it, it part of. So they've, they've evolved together. So black cherry is resistant. So if you wanted to make highly resistant prunus species, you might use black cherry root stock and try grafting onto it if you want to go that far. Um, sumacs grow uh, right in with that. So there are all kinds of things that you could plant into this hugel bed that would do okay. Hazelnuts do just fine. So those can be pruned more as a bush or a shrub or something like that. Currants uh, are tolerant. Black raspberry, elderberry. So I would pick some of the species that you know would do okay and put them into there. There's also some vegetables that you can plant annuals in there that will do just fine. Onions, beets, squash, melons, carrots, parsnips, beans, corn. Don't give a damn. Don't care. Don't really care at all. Most grape species should do okay. Um, because wild grapes and different types of grapes grow right in black walnut groves without any problem. Flowers, uh, some of them that are herbaceous that might be useful, like yarrow will grow, St. John's wort will grow, morning glories, bee balm, um, chrysanthemums will do fine for you. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other stuff. Sunflowers that are some artichokes uh, are pretty resistant. Uh, so there's plenty of stuff. And if you just you know Google like plants tolerant of black walnut 
plants tolerant of juglone. You'll find huge lists that are put out, a lot of them by universities. What I'm reading for, for you right now comes from Penn State University. And in Pennsylvania, they know a little bit about black walnuts because there's quite a bit of them there. Some things that tend not to do well uh, around black walnut and may be difficult to grow in your bed, asparagus, uh, rhubarb, um, Let's see, cabbage, peppers, tomatoes, eggplant, potato. All these things tend to have problems with uh, juglone. Um, so what I would do to test this bed that you've already built, I wouldn't tear it apart or whatever. Uh, apples and crab apples tend not to do well with juglone. I would pick a few species that supposedly won't do well and pick some species that should do well in spite of it and polyculture that hugel bed and if everything that's supposed to be resistant does good and everything that isn't does bad well you've probably got a pretty good juglone concentration in there if it all does okay then you've mixed enough things together that it's probably not a problem now you were asking about you know is it mostly in the leaves or the husks it's everywhere it's in the wood and what have you the husks are of the black walnut and the husks of pecans are lousy with it there's just so much it's the greatest concentration is in the green twigs the leaves and the husks and when I say the husks I'm talking about the shell though the shells have it as well what I'm talking about is the the purpley blue black messy part of a black walnut and the lesser messy part of hickories and and uh, and pecans and things like that but that is where the greatest concentration is never use that but I would refrain from using black walnut black locust, things like that, and composting, because there's another thing at play. They also have a, quite a bit of a natural fungicide in them, so they don't break down really well. It, you know, Part of what makes them useful as, as a timber crop is part of what makes them not break down very well. Black locust is like 80%, 80% or something like that of the, the non-wood material, the stuff that's just in the wood, is like a fungicide. and it, That's why black locust stumps last along. Now, composting Bermuda grass. If you get a good hot compost, you know, and you turn it every couple days and it cooks through to like a nice fluffy black compost, odds are that any rhizomes from Bermuda grass that got in there have been cooked and baked and they're not going to sprout. But it takes one little tiny piece of a Bermuda grass root that survived to make a new colony of Bermuda grass and start running. So I would say with Bermuda grass, if it's grass that you are cutting, So it's, it's grass clippings from mowed Bermuda grass. No problem. If you're digging it out, pulling it out, and the roots are going in there, you're risking it coming back. It's like a phoenix. Just when you're sure you've killed it, it returns. Um, and I don't hate Bermuda grass. People freak out. They come and they see my little Zone 2 orchard, and they see the Bermuda grass crawling in there. And I, oh, look at the Bermuda. I don't care. It's not hurting anything. We keep it pulled down and cut back to the point where it doesn't overtake. But I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to freak out about it. Every winter, it gets cold and it goes dormant. You know, and, and, and as other things grow and more shade comes, it goes, you want to get rid of Bermuda grass, shade it out. That's the, that's the only way to really get rid of it is to shade it out. Um, so as that area becomes more and more shady, it becomes less and less beneficial for Bermuda grass and it won't do as well there. Um, But, man, I've seen Bermuda grass go through the harshest droughts, turn completely brown. I've seen grass fires happen, scorch the earth, 
rains come, little sprouts up, and next thing you know, it's full on again. So I would not put Bermuda grass roots in my compost. And the main reason, again, is not because I don't, it's not because I hate or fear Bermuda grass, but that compost, you're going to be sticking it to your, into your garden beds, to your most fertile, well looked after, loved, weeded areas. And I don't want Bermuda grass propagated in there. If it ends up there, it ends up there. But I don't want to accentuate that. So that's my thoughts on that. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Tori, and I live in California. My question is, how do I create a food forest or something close to it while being a renter? My landlord has said that we must leave the property as it is when we moved in, so no additional plants. But I'm also weary of using containers because of their disadvantages of needing more care and maintenance than in-ground plantings. Thanks for your help, Jeff. Bye-bye. Yeah, well, I'm still going to tell you to do it with containers because that's it. There's no, there's nothing else you can do. Your landlord has said you can't plant anything and you have to keep the property the way that it is. And you're telling me you don't want to do containers, so I'm going to tell you do containers. Now, you say they will take more care and maintenance. It depends. It depends. Let's think here a little bit. Let's think here a little bit. We get ourselves some great big pots that can house dwarf and semi-dwarf trees, trees that will get up five, six feet, heavily intensive prune, the way you would do in a zone one anyway. And then we get us some some irrigation line, and we run it all around our pots like a little halo, and we put branches and things, and we hide it so it looks nice, and we put in a bunch of pots, and in each pot we put a little dripper. And then we create zones just like we would in the ground, and we say there's three zones because we only have so much water that will do this. And we have this all in a really small area because we're trying to make a forest, right? So we're not going to spread it all out all over the place. We're going to pick an area, and we're going to intensively do this. And we might get crazy and do 30 or 40 plants and trees like this. So we have 30 or 40 little emitters, three zones. And since it's close to the house because you're renting, you probably don't have a huge acreage or anything like that. The dream of a lot of land is great, but right now you got this. This is what you have. You probably have no problem, and it's probably inexpensive to run this irrigation system. Okay? And fertilizing with compost is plump, plump, plump into each pot. Not to mention if we want to grow something like blueberries that need an acidic environment, we can put the exact makeup of good acidic soil in the pot for the blueberries so we can be diverse. And then we could even put some trees out there that can't survive our environment in the winter, like, I don't know if you're too far north for fajoas or pineapple guavas or Chilean guavas, you could do those. Or you could do something like citrus or something like that and put those wheels on there and just pull the little emitter out and roll that sucker in the house in the wintertime. And even in the winter, in many climates, that plant can go out a lot during the day. You know, it only has to come in at certain times. You might get two or three weeks in the winter period where you don't go below freezing, and that plant's fine outside. It's happy. But then you get a week of frost, so you bring it in for a week and move it back and forth. I'm not saying you have to do the mobile thing, but it's an option, right? Now, here's the thing. You wouldn't want to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on plants and trees to put in the ground and leave behind anyway. Unless you're just that type of person, because I am. I'm happy to plant a forest for somebody else, hoping they'll look after it. But in the end, you, 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 you can't do that. I want you to do this. 
And I'll tell you why. I don't know that it's ever been done before. Now, with a caveat, one day you'll leave. When you leave, moving plants can get expensive. If you're not going that far, you can rent a trailer and load it all up and just park it at your new house. And, hey, you've got an established little portable food forest while you figure out what to do. And it can be a lot of advantage for you in taking cuttings and propagating from your little micro forest to plant into your mega forest, right? Or your mid forest, right? All right, so, so it's got that going on. But let's say you were going to move across the country and it was just cost prohibitive to move all these trees. Do you know what you have now? Something very valuable. So then I would take all of them and I would run an ad on Craigslist and say, 30 beautiful planted, established, productive trees available for sale, and I would sell them all. And I would take the money, and I would use it to establish my next place. So I'd either move it with me, or, but I want you to do it. I don't want you to say, well, it takes more maintenance. It doesn't really take... First of all, if you're doing an urban design, it's going to be high-maintenance design anyway. It's going to be very, very intensive, and lots of... Running your irrigation to a pot is no more complicated than running your irrigation to a, you know, a drip irrigation piece to something on a piece of property. If you're just going to water it with sprinklers, you have to water more frequently, but sprinklers put water in pots. I'm doing it right now. I have a zone that I'm watering right now, and I have a couple potted trees that I just stuck there to get watered. So that's not a problem. It would actually be really easy to create the ability to put organic fer liquid fertilizer right into your drip system. And if you decided, hey, I want to move stuff around, it's a little easier than once it's been put in the ground. A container food forest, multiple layers, creating its own ground cover with prunings. You prune it, you put it in the pot. It doesn't get lost. Um, you could run small vines, especially annual vines, up your trees, beans and peas. Those could even be planted into the ground because they're an annual and they're not going to upset your landlord. Never been done before. I'd love you to do it. I'd love you to plant it. I'd love you to do it. It makes me want to do it. It makes me want to do it. It makes me, with all my acreage, just by hearing you say that it's a bad idea, makes me think, what could I do like this? And could I do it mostly with the tender plants that can't survive my winters, that need to come in two, three, four weeks out of the year of total time that they need to come in uh, to get through the harshest part of my winters or that rare heavy frost and put those maybe right into my in-ground systems? I don't know. Somebody's got to do it first. Why not you, a container food forest? Sounds to me like you're up to it. Give it a shot. Those of you that uh, have been wrestling with the same type of concerns, maybe you should be first. But uh, I think it's your only option. I think it certainly can be done. I think the production can be high, and I think then it's either portable and movable to your next location, or if that's cost prohibitive, you have a financial asset. Because have you seen what people pay for established fruit trees? They pay a lot of money for them. I mean, just crappy little orange trees sell at Walmart for $30 and $40 a tree, and people are buying them. So give it a shot. 
With that, we've uh, rounded out another Friday, Friday, Friday listener call show. Thanks for all the great calls today. I know some of you are, like, there's a lot of agricultural, permaculturist stuff today, and some of you are like, I want to hear other stuff. Then call me. Ask me about stuff. This is, I take the calls in the order that I go through and screen them until I get eight or ten uh, to do, and then I just answer the ones that come in. Uh, so if you want to hear about other subjects, call in and ask about them. With that, I hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for your support of the show. Keep ears on the ground. We'll have more for you, and hopefully we'll be launching the Perma Ethos PDC next week. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for